Welcome to episode four of Untold Wealth, your homely and favorite economics podcast with myself, Devin Murphy, and my co-host, Vince Bullock. All right, and welcome. This is essentially your podcast uh, for all things economics in a more dumbed-down terms. If you don't know, Vincent and I uh, studied at the University of Cape Town. We both studied economics together. You know, we were pretty good at it, had the same classes, but, you know, our, our paths have diverged from economics in late years, but <laughs> we both understood we have a passion for it still. Um, so when Vince and I have been swimming recently, uh, we decided to start a podcast and, and what better to start a podcast with than economics, you know, we very much tried to incorporate a, a historical twist to it and a bit of South African flair, but the idea is that we can go pretty much in any direction. Okay. So what Vince and I do is we sit down together, we make some topics and then we go home and research them both independently. And then we come together and we chat about them. Um, and, and and honestly, this topic had a few hiccups. Yeah, um, <laughs> this week was a little dicey, I would say. It was a little dicey. I think that's kind of my fault. I mean, we sat together. I came up with what I thought was such a fantastic topic. I called it the cardinal sins of ordinality. It's a great title. Um, it's a great title. It, it obviously mm, it has a, a certain, as the French say, I don't know what. Um, <laughs> and... You know, those that are economically inclined would have heard of cardinal um, utility and ordinal utility. We're not going to, you know, perhaps go into that this this episode. But I mean, I quickly messaged Vince and said, man, I'm struggling to research this one. It's all, you know, every paper and every YouTube uh video you know nothing is very interesting it's very dry theory based very dry i mean it's actually it's an interesting um idea uh you know how to measure utility and things like that but uh, i mean it was tough to research so vince came up with an excellent topic we had to pivot sharing yeah we had to pivot vince share your topic and go go into detail about uh, how you presented it to me okay (laughs) so one of the cooler topics in economics uh, maybe doesn't get as much light as, let's say, game theory, but one that I find really fascinating is the union between economics and statistics, known as econometrics. Uh, and I had wanted to do like do this as a topic in the future, and this was the perfect opportunity to pivot into it. So when David Devin messaged me saying that cardinal sins of ordinality just had nothing going on with it, I, I brought it up and I was inspired uh, by that. I don't, I don't know if it was a show or a documentary. I think it was Katy Perry just discovering like science as a whole. And she had this great interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson where she asked the poignant and to be honest, really, really, like, underestimated question of, <laughs> is maths related to science? Um, Just one of, the, one of the greatest questions of all time. Uh, truly, it was <laughs> memed, <laughs> memed a lot on the internet. <laughs> I think we were in high school at the time. And so today we'll be asking and potentially answering the question of, is maths related to economics? Question there mark. we go. That is that is our topic sentence for today. 
and um it was it was definitely easier to research this topic i thought uh, but i also have taken it into a bit of a different direction so all right let's let's paint the picture of maths and economics so for those at home are probably thinking you probably maybe have two two minds about this some of you are probably thinking i mean economics isn't that just the study of you know like like people and some of you are thinking i mean talking about market dynamics of course this has something to do with maths like how do they figure out all the mathsy things behind it you know so in a, in, in essence both of these people are kind of right economics essentially is this mix between psychology and and mathematics to a certain extent and describing how markets function in a very you know human world and, yeah and that poses a very interesting problem you know are we even supposed to lump maths into that is it something that can even be quantified if it is quantified can it be quantified in an accurate way um so this was a a debate that honestly raged throughout the 1800s and 1900s when economics was developing oh, um a history the the history i'm not going to go into the history I, I i didn't find any you know nice anecdotes but it was heavily debated and as you could probably think mathematics didn't actually come into economics or it wasn't widely accepted in economics until kind of you know the late 1900s so mm. very much from the 1800s when the economics you know it was was developing and even the early 1900s economics was only or rather mathematics was only a like a part of 25 percent of research papers and today you'll very much struggle to find a research paper that doesn't use basic arithmetic or i mean not arithmetic calculus rather yeah um in its in its findings you know there's there's different types of research as well and the different types of research lend themselves to mathematics you know there's inductive uh is inductive research and then there's deductive research mm -hmm. um uh, but we're not really going to go into that but i mean it, it has been debated in fact most of these early economists took a very philosophical uh, approach to it and said you know it maths can never understand human beings quite as well um as we can <laughs> but but they kind of struggled to come up with theories that that could understand uh market dynamics you know so right. so maths i mean most people would probably agree right now that that maths is needed in economics but the degree is is quite debated even still today but for sure maths is used a lot more a lot more and some say too much all right that's all in terms that's that's the past right now okay mm -hmm. um i just have uh one quote i told last episode vincent always comes i'm very quotes. excited i brought a quote but this isn't a very flashy quote um this is from a book called the consulates um, by edward o wilson um and here's here's a few little snippets and in, in quotes in here that i found actually quite quite insightful um, one of his best quotes here reads, All analysts understand that the broad pattern of economic process originate in some fashion or other from vast numbers of decisions made by human beings, yes. whether as individuals or as members of firms and government agencies. The most sophisticated models of economic theory attempt to translate such microeconomic behavior into the larger aggregate measures and patterns broadly defined as an economy so what essentially that quote is saying is that lots of micro decisions 
microeconomics, where you know you've understood patterns of behaviors on an individual level, lend themselves to macroeconomics. These patterns broadly describe what human beings do on the aggregate. You know, there's some phrases that economists use all the time on the margin, on the aggregate. You know, yes, doesn't really matter. But that's essentially what maths uh, really helps us with is on aggregate, on a macroeconomic level, um, how are markets functioning to different stimuli, you know, different, different price changes, you know, how is supply and demand uh, changing as price changes, as externalities occur. So this begs the question, and this is the direction I want to take it to. Mm -hmm. um, we've had the 1800s, you know, the 1900s, and even, you know, uh, 21st century and we've had a lot of shocks and externalities and a lot of history um, you'd expect economics to be really good at uh, predicting stuff nowadays right i mean we yeah uh, a lot of bubbles bursting a lot of great no oh, not gonna say a lot of great depressions but <laughs> depressions and recessions throughout history you know you'd expect us to have a hang of things by now at this point but at this point, right? I mean, there's a reason that economists exist and you'd expect them to, you know, economize things. You'd do something. Them to predict, do, yeah, you'd expect them to bloody well do something. But it feels like you never can. And that's kind of what I wanted to touch on. You know, why can't economists, having maths, you know, able to run access to all this big data, access to government studies and well-funded research, how can we still not predict what humans do, you know? Like, how can't we predict this herd mentality of human beings? Um, for those who, of, you, of you who don't know, um, when something falls outside of, economic, of an economic model, um, it is called, or like a broadly accepted economic model, right? We won't get into that can of worms, but it's called an externality or a market failure. And a type of market failure is called a bubble. Now, everyone's heard of a bubble bursting. You'll hear it on the news. You'll hear it when the housing uh, housing market crashes. You'll hear it when a Silicon Valley bank, you know, kind of... Uh, Cryptocurrencies as well. A, a, a currency deflates, exactly. The bubble bursts, you know, very much like... It's like the glass... Uh, there's an episode of How I Met Your Mother where the glass kind of uh, shatters in their heads when they figure out they're annoyed by their partners. Uh. But that's kind of what a bubble is. The, the glass is shattering in everyone's head because they're realizing something is overvalued. So the strict, the strict definition of an externality is when markets fail, the individual incentives for rational behavior do not lead to rational outcomes for a group as a whole. So if each individual makes rational choices, we've discussed rational choices before in the past. It's what all economists assume humans are. You know, some behavioral economics makes some leeway there. But everyone acts rationally and in a reasonable amount of self-interest, right? Mm -hmm. But when people all do that collectively as a group, individuals, when they do that, a bad outcome happens for society. Um, an example of that is bubbles bursting. You know, it's really um, interesting. Yeah, and I've discussed this with Vince before as well. I mean, in my macroeconomics three class, I really love this idea. I like this idea that an economist's job is is not to predict when stuff happens. You know, it's 
It's to try and stop it from happening again, sure. But how do they stop it from happening again? Again, this is discussed a lot in game theory, but it's essentially to change incentives so that you know that if everyone acts in their own self-interest or mark, an externality is eventually going to happen, right? What you need to do is change those incentives so that when everyone acts in their own self-interest, a good outcome for society also happens. Um, but I want to paint you an example of something like this. This is what I liken the two. All right. So we have our farmer, Fred. Okay. Farmer Fred is a great farmer. He makes $50 a month and he uses sustainable farming practices that don't harm the environment. However, Farmer Bob makes $60 a month by using practices that harm the environment. Mm. So already that is kind of an environmental externality, right? Yeah. Um, Farmer Bob is acting in his own self-interest in a very, in a, even a more stricter sense than Farmer, uh, Farmer Fred is, and he's making money, right? So what does an economist do? I mean, what would an economist actually say to the governments? You know, there would usually be an economist behind this who's kind of trying to make a regulation to stop this. What an economist do, he, was, he would run some numbers, do some calculus, maths would 100% be involved. Um, and he'd say, all right, we are going to impose a $15 fine for those polluting the lake, that, uh, just like farmer, farmer Bob is. So, all right, so if farmer... If Farmer Bob now knows of this fine, he would realize that he would only be able to make $45 a month from polluting the nearest lake. So naturally, his incentives have changed. That externality becomes, you know, essentially, it essentially disappears because the government and economist who has advised the government has changed the incentives of polluting and you know, using polluting practices. Yes. But where it falls apart, this, it's, it's, there's this term, there's a hole at the bottom of mathematics. There's <laughs> a hole at the bottom of economics and humans <laughs> in general. Um, <laughs> okay. Because humans have to have oversight over humans. And whenever humans are involved, greed plays a role. Laziness plays a very big role. Mm. So you could imagine that behind the scenes, there's a government supervisor named i've called him dylan in my example who is very hard working okay and he inspects factories and factories have you know factories that he's supervising have a zero zero tolerance you know policy however then there's government official robert who becomes very lax um maybe he's very stringent in the in, in the present or like maybe in the past about enforcing non-polluting farming practices but unlike you know, government official Dylan, um, he begets, he becomes less stringent and he becomes lackadaisical. And eventually, uh, farmer Bob will just realize there's no oversight here. He can go back to polluting. Um, so I, I feel that encapsulates a lot of what happens, um, that kind of cycle. Um, what did I call it? I called it an externality cycle. Don't, yes. I, I don't care if it's accurate, <laughs> but you can kind of, you can kind of realistically see that happening in real life you know corruption from politicians and things like that government officials government agencies just maybe there's even just too many companies and too many farms it's impossible you know that regulatory process often dies out it happened in the global financial crisis when regulation rating agencies for 
for assets and asset classes and mortgage bonds were essentially being bought off by big banks. These are government agencies yeah. that, um, that very much contributed to the global financial crisis. Um, and, and this happens at companies where some of the workers will shirk responsibilities. In economics, we call people who don't do anything shirkers because <laughs> they, uh, they, you know, they, don't, they don't work. They shirk their responsibilities. Um, and very much, there's all these cases of whenever this happens, uh, the incentives of the individual almost never match up with what will bring the best outcome for society. Um, Unfortunately. And, I, and honestly, I'm not too sure what your opinion on this, Vince, is, but I feel like that's the root cause of why economists can't accurately predict the future, is that, funnily, humans, they weasel their way out of everything. <laughs> Laws in place, things like that. They'll lobby against it. They'll figure out some person to attack rather than the law itself, and they'll get around it. And eventually there will be lack of oversight you know the people you trust the oversight will do wrong you know um, your neighbor will do wrong first but you know when you elect people to to have that oversight when you maybe even amongst companies you'll have a board um, eventually it'll weasel its way in um, so what is your take on that Vince um, we chatted about it before but maybe you just want to chat to chat to our audience about it too yeah I think it's with economics, there's a lot of assumptions and hypotheticals at the root of it. Like there's statistics that economists base their findings off of, but there's always an asterisk next to it where a lot of these theories come with the assumption that people are, are rational. And I, I really agree with you that like when you put in place a policy, there's no wording or incentive that you can really make that will have everybody follow it because mm. i think it's going to be upsetting to some people and those people will pay as much money as necessary to move around to shirk it to to weasel their way out of paying that tax or contributing in a specific sort of way and yeah, yeah it's it's that route kind of does make it super difficult. And I think when you were talking about like in the 1800s and like even earlier, when people were talking about how statistics or maths, does it have a place in economics? I think it's very interesting because economics is so based around these people and the decisions they make, whether they'll shirk or accept new policy. So sometimes it does feel like when you bring in statistics or mathematics, it almost doesn't really gel with what mm. economics really is about, this kind of social science and how people make decisions in the face of certain resources lacking or certain policies being placed into effect. So sometimes it does feel like they don't go together. Yeah, it's just like, it's very philosophical. I mean, so so much of what of what economists do is like trying to figure out, you know, we talk about societal preferences. I mean, that is even a big, a big uh, topic of debate as well. Is you know, mm. if an entire society has a preference for some kind of governance, you know, 
Um, is it anyone's right to really change that? You know, but and then oh, there's so many kettles of fish. You know, like exactly. And what if you kind can't... of democratic process is there supposed to be? You know, how oh, do you yes. understand the democratic process that they want? Have are these preferences? Is it some kind of Stockholm syndrome? Of <laughs> different, uh, amounts of policymakers do they really want more of a progressive tax system, or do they want you know one where it's it's not quite as progressive? You know, it's tough, man. It's tough. It's it's philosophical and it's dirty stuff. And it and maths is. I feel maths is so clean. You know, it's it paints a clear picture. And then putting this clear picture next to such a messy mess that that modern civilization is, or that all civilizations have been, is it's tough. Um, and I feel, you know, as an economist, it's like, damn, they're so right. We can't really predict much. Um, yeah. Can, maybe in isolated circumstances, we can say, oh, yeah, when a forest burns down, um, the price of paper will go up because there's less paper. It's like, okay, great. You know, I mean, that's that's basic stuff. I'm, I hope we can predict that. But, but when like there's what the price of the paper will be or the quantity ooh. of paper that is like going to be supplied, that part might get a little fuzzy. Oh, man, it's it's rough. So, so that's kind of what I wanted to bring to the table, right? Is sure, maths has been, maths does have a place in economics, but economics, you know, has has flaws for sure um, that maths can't patch, that psych psychology and behavioral economics itself can't patch. Um, and I find that quite interesting. Um, it's super yeah. fascinating. Like it reminds me of. Um, this is not my area of expertise. I mean, even economics, I wouldn't say, but there's a, a kind of quantum state in physics where, like, if you're trying to measure, like, the speed of an electron around uh, an atom, for example, you can measure the speed, but you don't know, like, where it is at any given point. But if you know mm -hmm. where it is, you don't know how fast it's going. It does feel like with economics, there's sometimes where you just can't pinpoint one thing if you know something else or it, it's that uncertainty is built into it exactly exactly um so vince i'm curious to figure out where where you took this topic sentence from um vince and i chatted to each other before the podcast began and he he told me he's got this episode so I, I'm <laughs> keen. so so where did you take it my good friend so i kind of went a little bit meta with the topic uh, econometrics and statistics in economics is like super fascinating, but I think can get to the point where it's very dry. So what I decided to kind of like shed light on uh, is not only the fantastic stuff that econometrics has helped accomplish, topics like actual empirical evidence that education leads to a better quality of life overall and how minimum wage can affect employment, as well as many other world-changing topics that econometrics has helped bring to the limelight. I also wanted to chat about how econometrics can sometimes be not as straightforward as you might think. Uh, I think I, and perhaps others, sometimes have this conception of statistics as this ultimate objective truth in the world. Uh, and while that may be true, it does beg the question, how can economists disagree with each other if there's this objective fact number that is like in <laughs> front of them on any experiment that they 
decide to yeah. make. So just before you go, I mean, so Vince and I, we had a module in third year. Mm-hmm. Um, it was called quantitative economics. And it was yes. kind of this precursor towards your honors courses, which is very much, you know, from from bachelor's degree onwards, you know, and your honors, very much econometrics based. You're, very you're important. getting a lot of data, you're doing your own research, you're pumping it into statistical uh, software and you're running regressions on it. You're teasing the data, you're trying to figure out where things are correlated and where causation exists instead. Um, maybe you'll touch on that a bit later. But we have a bit of background to it. But even even that small project we did, and I think we did quite well in it, yes. um, makes you realize you know, how difficult that really is. These numbers, you know, as much as you think they're such an objective haha, they can be interpreted in different ways. But you can also tease them and you can... You can really play with it, and, and sometimes that does cause distrust in it. Exactly. There's this great quote by Mark Twain that says, facts are stubborn, but statistics are pliable, which I think is really quite... He brought in a Mark Twain quote. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, economists and, to be honest, experts in any profession uh, will find different results out of the same statistics, because not only is there a, such a process in what you base your findings off of, but then interpreting those same findings can be a whole variety or can bring forth a whole variety of conclusions. And, and to kind of put this in an economics perspective, we can talk about like a decrease in the unemployment rate. Like economists can analyze and interpret the same decrease in unemployment rate and then bring about their own theoretical theoretical perspectives to come to different conclusions. For example, a, a Keynesian economist who, to just reiterate to our first-time listeners, is an economist who believes that government intervention is an important part of maintaining the economy kind of to to, to stop it from spiraling out of control. A Keynesian economist might view that decrease in the unemployment rate as a positive sign of economic recovery. They might see it as an indication that demand has increased as a result possibly from government spending or uh, expansionary monetary policy, which has stimulated economic growth and is now creating jobs. And they would say that the government intervention is an important role. However, a classical economist, one that believes that self-market regulation should be kept to itself without any real government intervention, would maybe see a decrease in the unemployment rate with maybe a bit more of a cautionary perspective. They might kind of emphasize that it's important to let market forces and potentially even supply side factors, determine employment rates instead. And that it might be a result of workers exiting the labor force, whether it be finding other jobs or other demographic factors. They might emphasize the fact that certain policies promoting labor flexibility and reducing structural barriers would be more ideal. And thirdly, a labor economist might focus on what kind of employment was gained 
in that decrease of the unemployment rate. They might look at the fact that what kind of jobs were the ones that were gotten by people, such as wage growth, labor force participation rates, and other sort of part-time or precarious employment might not be a good sign, even though the unemployment rate has decreased. So like, like maybe it's very, you know, it's not like, you know, high class work, perhaps, you know, wages are, you know, workers are getting exploited at a higher rate. I mean, hey, look, the number of unemployment is decreasing, but, you know, maybe it's exploitative in some kind of manner, right? Yeah, um, or like over the summer, um, for example, like high school students or college students might get like a part-time job, which might see an increase in the employment uh, employment rate. But that's not a permanent position in most cases. So there's a lot of nuances with certain economic questions. Even if the statistics seem to draw an obvious conclusion. And again, while this may seem like fairly intuitive, I know myself and likely a lot of people, when they see that there's been a decrease in the unemployment rate, I would automatically assume that that is unequivocally a good thing you know mm. how would you feel if, if you saw that in a newspaper for example i'd be definitely like what do you mean you, you feel great when you see that you think oh my word our government is finally oh, i i think oh finally the government is doing something positive you know i mean that's just my subconscious other people would think aha free market forces are are going to town on unemployment. Good, our government needs to stuff up a lot more, you know? Like, <laughs> you know, like, definitely I could see that a lot of people having varying perspectives, right? Yeah, um, I think especially I, in South also, Africa as well. Some people are terrified of high employment because they say, oh my God, inflation in the next few years is going to be horrible. Absolutely. You know, like, there's so many different nuanced takes economists have, and they're all like, oh, this is good. But always there's some guy that's like, it's not good if, and then they cite X, Y, and Z, and then you go, oh, shit, he's, he could be right. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's definitely pluses and minuses to a lot of things, which, especially in economics, gives it that. Uh, there's no true, like, good results without some bad things, and I feel like you also touched on that, too. But to kind of illustrate this point a little bit further, I want to bring forth like a real-life example uh, in economics where the use of statistics and econometrics were ended up being for the worst and kind of encompasses a lot of the stuff that, I was, that we've been chatting about, really, on why econometrics can sometimes be this dangerous but powerful tool that you can play with. So, in 2010, there was a study on debt and growth uh, known as the Reinhardt-Rogoff study by mm -hmm. economists Carmen Reinhardt and Kenneth Rogoff. They published it in 2010, and this study gained quite a significant amount of attention uh, with regards to policy debates surrounding public debt and economic growth. The study itself examined the relationship between a country's level of public debt and then its subsequent econ economic growth. This is right after the housing crisis. So at the time, uh, the US's economy 
was experiencing a lot of public debt after bailing out a lot of these um, banks. The main finding of that study suggested that when a country's GDP debt-to-GDP ratio exceeds about 90%, so the debt that they have uh, is about 90% of their total earnings, more or less, mm. economic growth drastically declines, roughly about it's roughly cut in half, more or less, according to this study. And this finding had a such a profound effect and impact on the policy discussions leading after it, particularly in the context of what the government can do about it, whether they should be practicing fiscal austerity measures, which in essence is kind of uh, reducing government expenditure on things like infrastructure and kind of um, social programs, as well as increasing uh, tax tax rates. And following the 2008 financial crisis, this was one of the leading studies that enforced the idea that these fiscal austerity measures needed to be put into place. And by many policymakers, politicians, and, and pundits of sorts, they brought this study as an argument for fiscal austerity and debt reduction. People like the US Congressman Paul Ryan, the UK Chancellor George Osborne, and uh, Olli Rehn, who was the leading economic official of the European Commission. Uh, so as you can see, this had a, a global impact on the world. And many countries thereafter decided to put these fiscal austerity measures into place. Does it does it sound like I'm kind of heading for a train wreck here? Mm. Okay. Can, can you also Englishify uh, austerity measures for me? Um, <laughs> I'm a bit lost in the source, to be honest. No, no problem. Um, so fiscal austerity measures are, uh, to kind of break it down simply, it's like what the government can do to reduce debt. Like okay. a company, uh, a way that you can reduce debt would be to stop getting more debt. So you stop spending, and from a government's perspective, that would be stopping expenditure. So they wouldn't spend as much on infrastructure. They wouldn't spend as much on social programs, uh, okay. as well as increasing um, tax rates. So they draw more money in. Uh, with the combination of those two things, you can see how a government might not uh, not only like not gain more debt, but decrease their current debt level. Yeah, okay. Got you. But yeah, so several countries embarked on these austerity programs, and they placed together measures to reduce public spending and uh, reduce their government deficits. Obviously, the, the kind of counterbalance to that, when the government isn't spending as much money, uh, not only on infrastructure and social programs, which people rely on, they're also likely not taking on a new department, losing employment. People are likely being let go. Uh, tax rates being increased might mean that some people uh, don't either find ways of avoiding those tax uh, increases illegally or illegally or aren't as incentivized to make more money so not only does this kind of reduce government deficit but it has a profound effect on not only employment but the economy as a whole so these were put into place and 
nothing really changed too much. And in 2013, a, a graduate set of students from the University of Massachusetts, specifically Thomas Herndon, Michael Ash, and Robert Pollan, identified critical errors in the spreadsheet calculations used in that study. They analyzed that the results were significantly changed when you corrected the errors that were in the paper. And when they were corrected, it was found that that negative relationship between high debt and economic growth was a lot, lot weaker than in the original study. Hmm. So when properly calculated, the average GDP growth rate for countries carrying a public debt to GDP ratio of 90% is about 2.2%. Whereas in the original study, it was negative 0.1%. Well, all right. So contrary to that study, average GDP growth with the GDP to public debt ratio being over 90% is not dramatically different to when the GDP to debt to GDP ratio was a lot lower. lower. What did what did the original authors say? Did they like is it just an example of, you know, them being biased towards some kind of uh, you know, outcome that they wanted? Did they just own up to it? Did they even say anything? Do you know? So they looked at the study, these students from uh, the University of Massachusetts, and then they began to inquire with the original people who wrote the study, Reinhardt and Rogoff. And fair play to them, they were fairly amicable in giving these students not only the spreadsheet calculations, but also kind of um, illustrating their like line of thought. However, when they were kind of called up on it, they they did make kind of like this very sorry apology um, about using various kind of to kind of break down what was wrong with the study. Uh, the study itself kind of took a sample from many different countries, but they were very cherry picked, and they excluded countries like New Zealand that would have altered the study not as much in the favor of the uh, direction that they were trying to push it, so to speak. Hmm. But when they were called out on it, they were somewhat amicable, but very like tail between their legs in their apology thereafter. But they received substantial criticism. And this kind of reevaluated how economic policies should be impacted by these single studies mm. and erase like concerns about how a single singular like paper or, or flawed research could impact these policy decisions and yeah it, it was summed up tale. quite nicely by uh, paul krugman in 2013 when this came into light he said when reinhardt rogoff when the reinhardt oh sorry let me start again what the reinhardt rogoff affair shows is the extent of which austerity has been sold on false pretenses. For three years, the turn to austerity has been presented not as a choice, 
but as a necessity. Economic research, austerity advocates insisted, showed that terrible things happen once debt exceeds 90% of GDP. But economic research, in quotation marks, showed no such thing. A couple of economists made that assertion, while many others disagreed. Policymakers abandoned the unemployed and turned to austerity because they wanted to, not because they had to. That is a spicy statement, keepers. (laughs) That is a, a roast and a half. And to be fair, because of these two who debatably on how intentionally they wanted to like whether this was just negligence or they were actually trying to push a certain narrative the end of the day is because of it people lost their jobs people were unemployed and people weren't doing great in essence and it just kind of like spoke to me about like okay statistics of this powerful tool but if you're like not thorough with them especially mm. on such a scale where policies are made because of them it can be very dangerous yeah and even from i mean most people are like uh how were they wrong uh just having less having you know less debt that's a good thing for a country like what do you mean you know yes. like they are they're less in debt like it sounds like a t- terrific thing um, but obviously there's that factor of to decrease debt you have to decrease spending okay and governments do play a big role in employment they are the largest employers in pretty much any country right they're bigger than amazon they're bigger than amazon in the us you know like the Absolutely. us government employs more people um, there's that aspect but also like you can leverage funds from debt and from like a simple loan to get more money you know and to put it to greater use and give you more income in the future you know if you're smart about it right um, that's kind of why companies take out loans so they can invest it, whether it be in capital or financial assets and get more, you know, for example. So, I mean, debt is not a bad thing um, in a strict sense. It is simply a thing. Um, and much much of every economic instrument, it is very dependent on firstly your situation, environment, and these, the preferences of that society. Um, but also, it's uh, it's dependent on your level of risk that you want to take. Um, some some societies will like that, you know, and it's dependent on how you use it, uh, what your game plan is once you take on risk. So, I mean, there's merit to both arguments, 100%. Um, but that's why you can't make such rapid generalizations um, and assertions, even if you, you know... You know, you think it's less debt. How can it be bad? Oh, it can. Yeah. It can. It's a real interesting topic. And I think, like, the takeaway that I got from the story is not that, like, GDP or debt to GDP should be, like, really high or that it's okay that it's really high. But I think with policies and stuff, you are, especially in light of, like, something as the housing crisis in 2008. The decisions you make are like the best out of a bad scenario. There's no real perfect way to exit and return things to normal. But Mm. you want those decisions to be based on accurate and reliable facts. Yeah. Yep. 
preferences of society won't change that easily unless it, it's accurate and factually based, right? So you can only imagine how um, how much of a reputational hit something like that would have been to like uh, some kind of you know department within some governments around the world. Um, that's a tricky one, man. That's a uh, it's a bit somber as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I hopefully it's not a trend that I just bring somber topics, but I think it's really fascinating. Like statistics, I think especially in the current climate we're in, where a lot of new technology is being brought to like the forefront and has this amazing um, like impact not only on just like writing with ChatGPT but also like quantum computing of uh, hopefully yeah. in the near future. Like there's a lot of cool stuff that could be happening in the world of economics uh, and I'm really excited for it. Have you seen, have you seen, you've watched I Love Robots uh, on Netflix, right? Yes. There's, it's, it's basically a little mini skit series on Netflix where, and one of these skit series, there's love this Death yog- Robots, I think. Yes. I love Death Robots. There we go. Um, where this yogurt becomes sentient, um, <laughs> becomes extremely smart and sentient, okay? And he hands, you know, the US is crumbling, and he, this yogurt hands the, the president a piece of paper that says, okay, this piece of paper, if you follow it to the letter, uh, you can eliminate all debt in the United States and economically flourish, right? And, you know, it would work. Um, but hands it to the president, he says, lecker, you get me out of this great, uh, this bad situation. Um, then it kind of skips two years <laughs> in the future. And then uh, the White House is kind of like burning down and the president doesn't know what to do. Because yeah. he didn't follow, he didn't follow uh, <laughs> the yogurt's commands. Could you imagine if ChatGPT does something similar? <laughs> yeah. Tries to solve uh, economics and then humans still find a way to stuff it up. I mean, you know what? I wouldn't be surprised. Would be surprised. Um, so Vince, is math related to economics? I think you know what this. This is actually a difficult question to answer, even in light of what we spoke about. It's <laughs> it's related to it. We're, we're we might be kind of forcing it together a little bit, but I don't know if maths is inherently joined with economics at the root of all things, at the decision-making mm-hmm. root. But I think so. I think maths, I, I think I think it is well. I think really maths and, and the mechanics of the universe, you know, they're kind of related to everything. Um, not surprised that they're related, at least in some way, to economics, even if you can argue about whether it's uh, more or less. Yeah, all right? I agree. But, yeah, thanks for listening everyone make sure to like and subscribe and follow and give give this podcast a a, a recommendation to your your friend word of mouth is fantastic for for growth um yeah. economic growth <laughs> <laughs> hopefully you've enjoyed and we'll see you next time